0: This morning I'm going to talk about the most important thing in Christian life. I'm going to talk about the greatest commandment in the Bible,
1: and later on the second
0: greatest commandment. We all know at it. There's a line sometimes in the business world, and sometimes in our own personal life, that we remind ourselves of, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. In our walk with God, the main thing is spelled out very clearly to us when Jesus is asked. What is the most important thing? Probably everyone in this room could say what it is. It's to love the Lord your God. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor or yourself. Every time when I think about the great commandment, the love of God, the love of others, I think of my wife's relative named Eleanor Shulman. Pam's family and uh, grandparents had come from Ukraine last name you told spelled in a very odd way. But some of them stayed in New York City, and others came out to Michigan, the Detroit area. And we got the So when we left our church in Green Bay and went out to the hinterland of pagans and godlessness, we were in New Jersey. <laughs> Someone once told me, if you want to meet you know, a godless people and not Christians, you should go to New Jersey. Uh, there's some, some sad truth to that. But while we're out there, we're close to some of Pam's extended family. Now, because she had family there, she had been to New Jersey. I had never been there. And I am a Uber like you. We, we know what New Yorkers are like, do we not? We've seen the movies. We've seen the television shows. They're brash, obnoxious, loud. In truth, they're not quite that bad, except in Eleanor's case. She did not disappoint at all. My wife, who is a very, by nature, empathetic and nice person, know, opposite attract. She, <laughs> she, she, went immediately to her relative who was suffering from emphysema. She had to retire me. She was a registered nurse and spent her career doing that. And would go out to visit Eleanor in New York, and occasionally. She would drag her unsympathetic husband along with her. And having you know met and talked to Eleanor, I found her a very difficult person to deal with. But God would use Eleanor, teach me a great lesson on herself. As I would cross that bridge, I thought, you know, God commanded me to love Him, and the second commandment is to love my neighbor. And she was a person in need to find sometimes to a wheelchair. My wife went up and helped her, took her to her appointments, would take her to lunch, and occasionally, as I said, I would do that first was her. And remember, going over the Hudson River, going over what's called the Ambassador Bridge, and just kind of running it, going into New York City, and then going north on Highway 9 along the Hudson. She actually lived in Yacht which was basically New York City, just immediate north. And I'm dealing with Eleanor. This morning I'm going to give the first part of this two-part sermon. This part I'm going to talk about the love of God. Next week you have Missionary Russ Wright. And the following week I'll give you the second part of the sermon, The Love of Your Neighbor. And I will finish the story about Eleanor at that time. He's love the Lord your God. Me, I had to learn the un- outer love, the unlovely. That's a lesson we all have to learn as believers in Jesus Christ. Because the love of God was great to love, but the love of your neighbor, not so great to love. I remember a line from a book I read years ago. I'm not much into poetry, but this poem stuck in my mind. Oh, to dwell above the saints we love. That will be glory. But, but to dwell below the saints we know. That's another story. <laughs> I'm going to give you an overview of the Great Commandment Passages. These things are repeated three times in the Gospels of And I'm going to put these stories together. I'm going to implement uh, link them. You don't really understand how these discussions went on unless you look at the harmony of the Gospels. Each regular Gospel is obviously directed by the Holy Spirit. A prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke to God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you see in these three passages, if you put them together, how the whole conversation probably went. First of all, Jesus is dealing with adversaries, The enemies of Jesus, the people who had put him to death, were the religious and self righteous They weren't the prostitutes, they weren't the tax collectors. They loved Jesus because he told them their sins to be forgiven. These guys didn't think they had any sins to be forgiven. That is a terrible thought to think. In Matthew, which was written to Jews, we have a, a, a cabal, you can see where a lawyers, the Pharisees they were called, the scribes, different names, they were cabaling together and they come up with a question to ask Jesus and he goes up and this lawyer goes and asks Jesus what, about, what is the most important thing. Now Matthew was written to Jews, so you see in Matthew more Old Testament quotes than any other of the Gospels. All the gospels are filled with Old Testament, course, but none more than Matthew. And so when this lawyer comes up and asks Jesus about the most important thing, Jesus does the point. He quotes the cornerstone of the Jewish faith, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. To quote the whole phrase, it starts at verse 4, goes to verse 9. And I'll just give a couple of the lines here. It's the great Shema of the Jewish faith, the cornerstone of the faith to this day. Uh, they would sing it out. In Hebrew, it would be Shema Yisrael. I'm not going to sing it. Yahweh uh, Elohim, Yahweh Echad. Means, here are Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Just an interesting side note the word Echad does not mean a singular one. They had a word for a singular one. Echad is the same word that Moses used to describe the one bunch of grapes that they take out of the Promised Land, when they say despise and despise it out, they carry out a hard bunch of grapes. One bunch of grapes. But how many grapes are on that bunch? There was more than one. Hence we see in this word a hard versus a single one, this is a group of one, an implication of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Implication of the Trinity. So Jesus answered this question. And he quotes the principal verse of the Jewish faith, Deuteronomy 6.5, "You is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The direct quote from 6.5. That's from the Jews. Mark and Luke was not written primarily to Jews. It was written to the Gentile world. Luke specifically, the passage I will focus on this morning, was written to the Greeks, and the Greek world uh, they had this concept of the perfect man. Their whole educational system was based on that. The perfect man was perfect in his body, hence the physical training, the gymnasiums and the stadiums. We get those words from the Greeks, those the Greek words. That emphasis in, in their language and the emphasis in their educational system. And also of the soul, they had religious education, and also of the mind. Greeks, we think, invented the whole logical, rational thinking process, reasoning process we call it syllogism. If this, then that. Uh, when Mark and Luke, who was written to Romans, Mark, right, when they quote Deuteronomy 6.5, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew listener would understand that when Deuteronomy 6.5 said, oh, I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, within heart and soul is a concept of thought and of mind. But when you translate that into Greek, it loses that part, of the definition, the way that the Hebrew speaker is meant to be. And so they add the word mind. So you see four things in Mark and Luke. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, referring to the rational reasoning process that was so pride, particularly in the Greek community. Now, when this lawyer came up to Jesus, like every good Jew, they would wear something called a phylactery. Perhaps some of you have heard that one before and are familiar with it. A phylactery was a little box about the size of a wallet that they would put scripture in and put it on their forehead with a little string wrapped around it and around their wrist. The cornerstone, like like I said, of the Jewish faith is Deuteronomy 6.4, the Great one.'" You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength in you. And a couple of verses down it says, These verses are here to talk about them and press upon them, to children, unto your children, and you are to write them on your foreheads, and you are to write them on their hands." Many Jewish, particularly the most religious, took that literally and they, they would create these phylactic boxes and write, most of the time, that very verse in this little box, walnut size, Deuteronomy 6 5, love the Lord your God. And put that on their forehead and put that around their wrist. So the scene unfolds as this lawyer comes and talks to Jesus, ready to attack, ready to test, not to build, but to cause to stumble and destroy from this cabal of, of, of convocation, uh, collection of lawyers. He tells him this question, and uh, it's possible that when Jesus is looking at this man it is, and he answers the question, and then Jesus asks them a second question. We get that in Luke. Because in Mark and Matthew, you, you hear Jesus quoting Luke 6.5, In Luke, you hear the lawyer quoting 6.5. So it's possible, again, given the rabbinical kind of discussions, the Socratic arguments that they would make, answering a question with a question. And it's perhaps that Jesus asks him, well, what is the most important thing? And he points to the flattery on the lawyer's head. Points to the phylactery on the lawyer's wrist, which almost certainly had Deuteronomy 6.5, and probably the other part which says love your neighbor, which comes from Leviticus 9.18. Jesus pointing out these things that the lawyer was wearing right in front of him at that moment. Here's how the passage reads. On one occasion, the expert in the law, the lawyer, stood up to test Jesus again, not to build. But the cause of someone. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a logical contradiction right there in that question. Think about that question. What must I do to inherit? What do you do to inherit something? The answer is, you do nothing. Inheritance has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what somebody else does and gives you. Inheritance is a gift. So what must you do to inherit eternal life betrays a false thought that this lawyer has. If someone has a father who is a millionaire and he writes in his will to give everything to his son, the father dies and the son what? He inherits it. He inherits what his father has earned. Inheritance is not based on performance. Inheritance is based on relationship. Father and son. We are brought into the family of God. We inherit the salvation that Jesus does for us and gives to us. There's no doing in inheritance, in inheritance there's only receiving of the gift. So right away, he doesn't understand what's going on. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? Again, Jesus is answering him passively, pointing at the phylactery on his, on his head, pointing at the phylactery on his wrist. Well, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The top your smart. Well, I'm just going to say back what he just said. And with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. Now we know the subsequent thing that happens, we go into what's called uh, the Samaritan's story, the Good Samaritan, which I will do two weeks from now. But let's break down that passage. And what does it exactly mean to do all those things that we are told to do? In Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Matthew Mark and here one, in 10.27. We're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does that mean? When you look at the word heart, which in Greek is cardiac, by the way, when we get to the word cardiac, and the Hebrew word, which is another word called Levab, you read in these in that definition of what that word means, and you look at the definition but all the times that word is used in the Bible, and here's what scholars will come up with. The, the heart is the focus of a person's thoughts, his mind, his volition, his emotions, and knowledge of right or wrong. In other words, your conscience. All those things are wrapped up when we say heart. And I want to point out one word here in this word heart, and that is the word volition. Elisha means what? It's the will. It's the will to do something, it's what you choose to do. If we, for, if we, for instance, say a person is wholehearted, what does that mean? It means they're very zealous, wholehearted, they're all in kind of person. I play sports, Maybe some of you did as well. And we were encouraged to be wholehearted in whatever we did, and we certainly try to do that. So I have my mind, my emotions, and my conscience, but also my will, is part of my heart. And God calls us to be a wholehearted people. But that's not the only thing it says. It also says, we are to love the Lord your God with all your soul. Again, you look at all the uses of that word soul, which in Greek is the word psyche here, where we get the word psychology from. In Hebrew, Quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, is the feast, which also means breath, breath of wind. It's the immaterial part of a person, which is the actuating cause of an individual life, the state of all the psychological faculties, such as heart and mind and conscience. But the difference here between heart, which has some overlapping meaning with soul, is the idea of the whole person. The word literally literally means throat, which came to mean breath. God breathes into the man. It's the whole person. It's the whole life. When you look at other verses that use that same word, where a person's loss of life, the loss of their soul, meaning the soul, the breath of their life, has departed and it's gone on to be with God. It's the whole life of the person. So the heart, I have my heart, mind, and soul, my heart, mind, and emotions, and conscience, but I also have my will. It brings a will to soul, which soul does not have, but the soul brings something of its own. It brings the concept of the whole life of a person. God can cause us to have a wholehearted will to him, and indeed a wholehearted life that we give to him. One thing about coming out to, from New Jersey, where there's no old people, by the way, the, 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 the tactic of getting rid of old people in New Jersey, other than sending in to Jersey homes, you know, is to tax them to death. So, <laughs> periodically and share the delight of either being the worst taxed state in the union or sometimes the second worst taxed state. We share that back and forth with Connecticut. And one of the surprising things I found out going from Green Bay, New Jersey, is everything, every time you turn, possible. It just does. So there's, there's part of that, that, that whole extra price is so old people, senior citizens, valuable people in the church, which I am proud ever, uh, would leave from Pennsylvania or North Carolina, or in my case, the next to the Holy Land, the Upper Prince of Michigan. Exactly. Where I am proud. So, you know, you see a lot of young people there, young families, uh, and you see a different kind of a, a, a feeling in the church of young people in big youth groups, big Bible clubs. Uh, that was the heart of those ministries there. And you see in those younger people, there's kind of a zest for life. You, you get a little old, you get a little tired, let's be honest. But whatever gas I got left like, in my tank, I was just sharing this with Randy. I intend to spend that with Jesus Christ. The tank's getting a little low, but it's still got a little left. So love the Lord your God with all your soul. The third thing it says, and does not just stop the soul, it goes to the word strength. It means your physical qualities. That means the possession of the qualities required to do something or get something done. Especially the possession of physical qualities. Now, the Greeks really camped on that too. They had the mind, the rational thought, they had the idea of the soul, of a religious nature. The soul also means the breath of life that God breathes in us. There's a relationship of understanding that the soul is how we understand God. And the strength aspect is the doing of what we believe. This is the thing that the Pharisees forgot to do. They had what scholars would describe as a cult of memory. I was reading and looking at a story about a memory champion from Mongolia named Yanja. And she was on this TV show, one of these early morning shows. And to test her memory, she had read this book. And the, 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 uh, the interviewer looks at the book and says, all right, we'll test it. They always about page 130. Okay, I'm on page 130. He's just holding the book close to himself. She can't see it. What's the top of the line saying? And she quoted it word for word. This is what a Pharisee could do. They had this call for memory idea, they would memorize not just simply the words, but what section it was in, what line it was in, and they would do a test. The test would be okay, on section 10 on the scroll, it's saying Deuteronomy. 10 fine down, fourth word in, what is it? And they would know The problem was, it was a brain knowledge and not a heart knowledge. It didn't get down into the doing part. And this is the hypocrisy that Jesus pointed out to this lawyer. Yeah, you, you know it up here, but you don't know it in your hands and in your feet and in your life. You, you're not doing what it says. Hence the emphasis on the scripture of doing. There's a little line that goes about learning. It says, I hear, I forget. Let's be honest, most of you have already forgotten what I said 30 seconds ago. Mm. The other line is, what I see, I remember. Now if I put the verse up there in Luke 10, you have a far greater likelihood of memorizing that line because you've just visually seen it and you've heard me say it. But the real knowledge comes when you do. I do. And I understand. That Pharisee did not understand the word. Yeah, he remembered it. Yeah, he could quote it. But he didn't understand it because he was not doing it. I learned the word of God not simply by memorizing it, which I do, I learned it by living it. You don't really know a Bible passage until you begin to live that passage out. I see God working in my life because I'm doing what He says. In the this discourse on a number of occasions, Jesus Emphasizes the point.
1: If any love one loves me, he will
0: obey my teaching. If he obeys my teaching, my father will love him, and I will love him and make my home in him. When we follow Jesus, and you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit is in you. When we follow Jesus, he makes our home in the person who loves him with his heart, his soul, and strength. Not that we ever do that perfectly. We do it as an inherited grace and gift, not something we're earned, but something we're given but we learn to love at that level of the doing and responding. So we love God with all our strength. The other thing it adds, of course, is the love of the Lord your God with all your mind, something that was very highly prized in the Greek world. That which is responsible uh, for one's thoughts and feelings, especially the seat and the faculty of reasoning. Now the Jewish scribes love the idea of reasoning and of of this, if this, then that, of using, even though they were Jewish, of using the Greek Socratic method. In other words, answering a question was another question. And Jesus, of course, was the master of that. So the lawyer asks him a question, and then Jesus turns around, what do you say about that question? In a couple weeks, I'll talk about the answer that Jesus gives about who is my neighbor. The Jewish leadership were smart guys, they understood the word was to love God, and they knew that Leviticus 19:18. They would even wear that in the flakery. But I'm to love others. not to love my neighbor. But they so restricted the definition of the word neighbor to mean only people that were like them and that they liked. That's not what God says. The love of your neighbor that Jesus is talking about, the love of the neighbor that Leviticus 19:18 is talking about, is a love without qualification. He even talked about things like loving your enemies, which is a bizarre thing to do, which if we were brutally honest with one another, no one would do it. You wouldn't love your enemies if God didn't say you need to love your enemies, because that's who God is. It's without qualification you love all people without qualification. And you use this idea of giving your rational thought to God, and you put all that together for the love of God, to live a life of love. Now, hence my chain. Imagine there's four links here, and this link has to do with your heart. In the heart, it has its own particular distinctive, but it also has things in common with the other points of the uh, command. In the heart is my intellect, my emotion, my conscience and particularly my will. The intellect and the emotions, that's connected with the second link in the chain, which we'll call the soul. So the heart has its own distinctives, but it's not alone. It's connected and inseparably connected to the idea of soul, which includes some of the definitions of the word heart, but it adds something else to it. It adds the idea of your whole life, the whole of your being. So my heart, I bring the will into the uh, intellect and mind and uh, conscience, and with my my soul, I bring the idea of my whole life, my very being, into the idea of my intellect, my conscience and emotions. But it doesn't end there with two links. It goes to a third link, and that third link is strength. My physical strength that I do and expand in serving Jesus Christ, I expend strength to come up here and stand here. A little bit more than you realize. I was very sick last year, as a severe reaction, as often a severe reaction, to the Moderna accident. Very nearly killed me. And so I lost a lot of strength. And so, coming here and preaching, not one, but I'm actually going to have to preach again in an hour or so, at least allegedly, barring the rapture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the, The idea is, I get my strength, so I sit down a little bit, so I make sure I have enough strength to come up here, and I'm going to sit down again make sure I have enough strength for the second service. But I'm doing that for Jesus Christ. I'm going to do it with my heart and my soul and my strength, and finally with my mind. I give God my, my reasoning capacity, God, correct my reasoning, make it you know, not carnal or fleshly or sinful, but make it inspired by your Holy Spirit, so I will think like you, I will be like you. Let Christ live his life out within me. You see, all of these are links in a chain. You can't separate them out. You don't have heart and not soul. You don't have soul and not strength. You don't have strength and not mind. They come as a package. When we love God, we love God with all that is in us. And that is the glory of the Christian life. You can never do it perfectly. And that lawyer knew he couldn't do it perfectly. Hence, he feels threatened, and Jesus launches it into the Good Samaritan story to explain to him yeah, you're right, you don't do this perfectly. Now he needed a savior, he just didn't know it. He needed to inherit eternal life, not do something for eternal life. When I think of my, my wife's relative, Eleanor, and helping her out, painting her, her apartment, taking her places, I was doing that, and this is literally what I thought. I learned how to love the unlovely. I'm living the life of God. I thank God for Eleanor Chole. I thank God for how God used Eleanor Chole in my life. We need to live the life of love.